0: Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, our featured storytellers pack some atomic power in our flagship season, Brave the Elements. On March 26, 2019 at Jump in downtown Boise, these storytellers got into their element with stories inspired by the theme, Aluminum. And now, our featured storytellers, Laura Coleman, Jenny Florendo, and for the first time since starting to host this show, I will share a story too. It's elemental. It's story time. Laura Coleman.
1: And Hello. Hello, everyone. So have you ever wanted to skip Thanksgiving? And just skip all the drama and the political banter and your uncle bob saying make america great again (laughs) well i did that last year my boyfriend and i loaded up our blue healers and headed on down to moab utah to explore the red rock country down there blue dogs red rocks good time (laughs) of course with a road trip comes the need for fun music playlists, audiobooks. We listened to Born a Crime by Trevor Noah, really good book. Uh, and then we found ourselves in the podcast realm, lovely realm. Um, we started listening to some TED Talks specifically in sustainability and found some ted talks about food waste and the zero waste lifestyle and we got really inspired by these people who are actively deciding to be conscious about the waste that they create Um, so we decided why not do the rest of our vacation zero waste who's stopping us And so we did, and it was kind of a big decision to make because we're both from Idaho City, and Idaho City is a super small town about an hour away. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it. Uh, (laughs) I had 25 people in my graduating class, And there really was no um, sustainability focus or eco-friendly things, except for one guy who actually started this program called Cans for Kids where he collected aluminum cans and donated the proceeds, but that's about it. So like I said, it's kind of a big deal for us from going from zero to 60 uh, in this. Um, So our first obstacle was going into a grocery store and once your mindset has changed, you see everything bad. (laughs) I walk in and all I see is packaging. So many things in packaging. Like you can't avoid packaging unless you're very careful about it. Even the bananas were in a plastic bag. Like don't bananas have packaging called the banana peel? (laughs) It's crazy. Um, But other than that, like we, we, lived on fruits and vegetables. We found some bulk bins and lived on some grains. Um, Specifically, Moab has awesome gigantic carrots that we lived on. We even fed the carrot tops to our dogs. Um, And so it went well the rest of our vacation. We recycled the materials we brought with us before we made this drastic decision. And um, we got to the end of the trip and I was pouring a bowl of granola and got my cashew milk out that I had brought and poured the last drop. And I look at this container and I'm like, what is this? Like, Is there wax on the outside? Like it's paper, cardboard, what the heck is this thing? Um, And I look around the container and there is a recycle symbol with very fine print. And it says only where the recycling facilities are available. And so I'm like, I don't know where the recycling facilities are available. So I brought it all the way home. It went from Boise to Moab and back to Boise because I didn't want to throw it away. And so we got home and I hopped on Google and I'm pretty good at Googling. I've worked at a library for a number of years and I found that That waxy part on the outside is not wax. It's actually polyethylene, which is plastic, weird. And then the next layer is paper. And in some shelf stable cartons, there's a layer of aluminum, very interesting. So this must make these very difficult to recycle. I can't even imagine and so I decided to call the city in the recycling department see if they knew of any place I could recycle this or take this and the first person I talked to said oh yeah you just put that in the orange bag no big deal and I was like lady this is not just plastic this is also paper and sometimes aluminum and she didn't even know that and so she forwarded me to someone else. And the next lady's like, yeah, you actually have to throw those out. Those go right in the landfill. Um, Boo, unfortunately. Uh, So I um, was really kind of bummed out at that news. And so I did a little more Googling uh, and found uh, an organization called the Carton Council and the Carton Council actually educates people about recycling cartons and um, have a cool tool where you can put in your zip code and find the nearest carton recycling facilities near you and so I entered in my zip code nothing entered in a couple other zip codes nothing Nampa nothing Cuna nothing McCall nothing. Pocatello, nothing. Coeur d'Alene, nothing. Literally nothing. There's nowhere in Idaho you can recycle these cartons. And that's just completely insane. They're just going straight in the landfill. Like, how many of you use alternative milks or broths? Like, nobody? (laughs) All right. (laughs) Great. A lot of people. (laughs) Okay. And and you know that there's nowhere in Idaho to recycle this at this point. Um, And so... I saw an alternative at the bottom of the page where you can actually mail in your cartons to facilities that will recycle it for you. And so I thought, great, I can just save my cartons and send them on away. And I there was really no time in between deciding to do that for myself and deciding to involve the community because I'm a very impulsive person. And so I got on Facebook and I reached out to some Facebook groups like Boise Bench Dwellers and the North End and to garner up some interest for carton recycling, and I got some people interested. So that turned out to me doing a pickup service where you sign up. (laughs) I know. (laughs) You sign up on my Google form that I made, pick a day for me to come pick it up, and I'll go pick up the cartons off your doorstep that went great people signed up of course didn't go without its obstacles like there was one house i went to there were no cartons on the step and they had scheduled it and so i decided to knock on the door maybe they forgot and i knock on the door and this man opens the door looking confused i'm like hi i'm laura from recycle pack i'm here to pick up your carton recycling I had somebody from this address sign up for a pickup today. And he looks at me confused and I see behind him there's this woman kind of scantily clad in like a silky robe. <laughs> and he's like, oh yeah, my, my wife must have done that. I, I, she does stuff without telling me. And I'm like, okay, so that's not your wife behind you? <laughs> okay, this is fine. I'm gonna leave now. <laughs> On that note, I decided, you know, this whole pickup thing, it's, I'm driving back and forth with my gas-powered cars, kind of negating the fact that I'm recycling. So I decided to reach out to the Boise Co-op and see if they'd be willing to be a drop-off location, and they said yes, and I'm like, great. I don't have to go through that again. Awesome. Uh, and that got set up in January, and the, cart- the bin's been filling up. Uh, at first, it was every few days. Then I got to every two days, every other day, every day, and now sometimes more than once a day. Um, So it's a little overwhelming. Um, And so I decided to join on this meeting with someone in recycling in the city to see if this would be a program that the city would be willing to take on at any point, add this to their recycling repertoire. And long story short, they said, we're drowning in orange bag recycling. I'm sure you guys have used that. We're drowning in compost, and there's no way we could take on a new project within the next few years. And I'm like, okay, so it's on me. <laughs> Great, wonderful. <laughs> uh, so I, um, all these cartons are piling up. There's actually over 150 pounds of cartons stacked to the ceiling in my dining room packed in boxes. Um, I'm trying to figure out um, a cheaper way to ship because the first box that I shipped was less than 10 pounds and cost $50. Yeah, yeah, out of pocket. Um, And so I, I have a friend who sells herbal supplements, not those kind of herbal supplements. Uh, who has a cheaper way of shipping cartons, or shipping in general? I would be shipping cartons, um, but in order to do that, I have to have a tax ID. In order to have a tax ID, I have to get nonprofit status, but I'm looking at getting fiscal sponsorship, and it's all just so overwhelming. Just because I impulsively decided to do <laughs> to do this. Um, But you know, it's all worth it and I've still been doing the zero waste lifestyle and it's been really great. When I run out of deodorant, I take five minutes to make my own deodorant, if I run out of ketchup I do the same thing, it only takes like five minutes, it's really easy. Um, And so I really think that this is all worth it. If I'm just this one person who impulsively decided to do this one thing, I know that if everyone decided to do that one thing, we could make a difference and try and reverse the devastating effects of climate change that we're going to see in the next decade. Um, And so I live every day with this quote in mind to help me go by Emma Watson, if not me, who? And if not now, when? Thank you.
0: Jenny Florendo.
2: So my story also starts in a hospital. No shrimp, but a hospital nonetheless. Uh, I wake up, and I'm in a room that I don't recognize. Can't really figure out where I, why I'm there. And I look over, and there's a nurse that I've never seen before. And she looks at me, and she seems nice, so that's good. Um, and I know I'm supposed to ask her a question. Can't really think of what the question is. And then it comes to me, and it's, where are my babies? And she says, your babies are down at the NICU. We'll go down there in just a little bit. Rest up. And she seems nice, but I feel like she's lying. And she wasn't, but I felt like she was. And so I asked her, where are my babies? What about the little one? Is she dead? I don't know why I was asking that, but I said, where is the little one? Why is she dead? And She goes, no, she's not dead. We're going to go down to the NICU. Your husband's there. The doctors are there. We're going to go down in just a little bit. You need to rest. And I say, okay. But is she dead? No. Honey, you're going to be fine. We're going to go down and see them. And she then left the room because there was no point in her staying there any longer so i sat there and waited for my body to wake up and um, tried to figure out really what was going on and uh, i thought back to two months previously my husband joel and i um, had gone in to have an ultrasound on our baby and we were scared but we were excited Um, i was 17 weeks along we'd already heard the heartbeat of our one baby And so as we went in to find out if our one baby was a boy or was a girl, we found out there was actually two babies. You know, they're like, oh, hmm, that's interesting. Something that you don't really want your ultrasound tech to be saying, hmm, uh, that's a second heartbeat in there. And my husband starts laughing and I get angry because I don't know why my baby has two hearts and he's (laughs) laughing at my mutant baby. And as she starts finding different body parts, I start to realize, well, there's two babies in there. And I'm not gonna lie, I've always found twins to be very creepy. And (laughs) I, the fact that they started as one person inside me and then at some point they decided to clone themselves and then become two people. And I didn't get a say in it at all. Like they just decided it on their own. I'm already outnumbered. And here I am, and my husband's laughing, and the doctor comes in, and he says, wow, twins, it's so exciting. Yeah. And he says, one thing that we're not seeing is an amniotic sac in between your daughters. And normally, twins, they each have their own little amniotic sac that keeps them safe. It's their own little cocoon. And my daughters didn't have that. They were sharing an amniotic sac. And it made for some really cute ultrasound pictures. They were holding hands and being closer than they ever have been outside the womb, but (laughs) their umbilical cords had become a tangled mess. And so the doctor, we lived in Twin Falls, Idaho at the time, two hours south of here. And the doctor was very honest with me and said, we cannot handle your pregnancy here. I've never actually seen a pregnancy like this. And um, to be honest with you, our NICU would not be able to handle the types of babies that you're going to be delivering. I'm like with the one with the two hearts and and so he sent us up to Boise and so we um, we did the drive two hours up to Boise waiting to see what's going to happen and uh, as we met with a maternal fetal medicine specialist they informed us that the best way to to move forward is that at viability I would come into the hospital and I would be monitored for the remainder of my pregnancy so at 25 and a half weeks of pregnancy, I went in to St. Luke's and prepped myself for a 10-week stay. Yeah, right? I could have all the milkshakes I wanted. There was no diabetes yet or anything. You know, It was, it was going to be pretty great. Um, but I was monitored constantly to check and make sure that the blood flow was still going through both of the umbilical cords, that their heart rates were strong, and that they were growing appropriately. So I was supposed to do that for ten weeks, and I made it ten days. So the nurse comes back in, and she says, "Hey, are you ready to see to meet your babies?" And of course, inside I'm like, uh, "No, like I'm supposed to meet my babies in eight and a half weeks instead of right now." But I'm a new mom, and I'm not supposed to say that, so I have to smile and say, I'd love that. And so as we head down there, I'm terrified because I know that this is not going to be the bundles of joy that everyone talks about. I know that my babies are 27 weeks old. And so as we head that way, I see my husband, and he's walking out. And he has been in the NICU with both the girls. And I can see by his face that he's just as scared as me, which is good, at least. Um, We're in this together and I realized that I hadn't seen him since 4 a.m. about an hour and a half earlier when I had been woken up because baby B had fallen off the monitors And then all of a sudden a flurry of nurses are in our room. It's 4 a.m. and I'm trying to figure out what I'm supposed to be doing and they're moving me around and they're trying to, to get her back onto the monitor and it's probably a normal thing. You're probably fine. Why doesn't she have an IV in? And where's the doctor? I don't know. And so the charge nurse comes in who's a big lady but still very, very kind. And she says, I'm gonna do an ultrasound and we're gonna find that baby. And she brings the ultrasound machine in, and she moves it around, and she finds her. And then she quietly counts the beats on her watch. And she looks at me, and she says, your baby's heart rate is at 45 beats a minute. Honey, you're going to have those babies tonight. We just have to find a doctor. So they whisk me out of the room. Joel gets left back in the room like it's 1954, and he's smoking a cigar waiting for me to get done with the woman stuff. And I go into this room. It's already packed full of people, all prepped and ready for this. I don't know how they did it. It was only 10 minutes. And they get me up onto the table, and they put the oxygen over my, mat, over my face. They tell me to count backwards from 10. And as I'm counting, I'm thinking, Jenny, when you wake up, you're going to be a mom. Don't ask any stupid questions. Only ask about your baby. Z. It had only been like two months. I really had not fully grasped the fact that there was two of them in there. So um, the first time that I met my daughters, nothing could have prepared me for that. Baby A was 1 pound 14 ounces. Baby B, the little one, as we called her, was 1 pound 9 ounces. They were just itty bitty, and it was terrifying. They were an hour old, and they'd already had two blood transfusions. The doctor said, they look strong, they're going to do great, they're good fighters, but it's going to be a tough journey. So, I'd had a different plan, though. I'd had a C-section, so I was allowed to stay at St. Luke's for three days, But the doctor said that the girls would be there at least until their due date probably, which was still three months away. My husband was a school teacher in Twin Falls, two hours away. He made $19,000 a year. (laughs) Yeah. So needless to say, we couldn't afford another apartment, we couldn't afford a hotel room, we couldn't afford really anything. My plan was to squat in the hospital. You know, like just kind of jump from empty room to empty room until someone didn't notice me, and then I'd move around. (laughs) And then uh, the day before I was discharged, the patient care coordinator came in, and she said, hey, there's a room open at the Ronald McDonald House. And I said, "Oh, oh, okay. You know, I knew two things about the Ronald McDonald House. The first one was that was where kids with cancer stayed because that's what I saw on TV. And the second one was that they collected those weird little pop tabs, and I always was supposed to do that in school for some also weird reason. (laughs) Now, I found out later that only one of those is correct. correct. They do collect the pop tabs. Um, But it's not just a place for kids with cancer. It's actually a home for families of children that are in the hospital or are struggling or need help. So I get discharged, my sweet husband drives me over to the Ronald McDonald House, which is just right across the street from the hospital. And as we walk in, we're totally honest with them about our finances, like we have no money. Um, Luckily, Medicaid had offered to pick up our, um, our daughter's birth starting April 1st, but they had been born March 31st. So we were only on the hook for day one which the bill was around $100,000. So they kindly looked at us and they said, it's okay, just pay what you can. So as I settled in to St. Luke's, or to uh, Ron McDonald House, Joel settled into his life back in Twin Falls, and we saw each other on the weekends. Now they say that the NICU is a roller coaster ride, but Whoever says that um, obviously doesn't like roller coasters, because really what they need to say is the NICU sucks. Like, it just (laughs) sucks all the time, and you feel super inadequate all the time, and I had no idea how to be a mom, especially to these things that were like the size of a pack of butter, and I didn't know what to do, and my days consisted of mostly just sitting next to the incubators called isolettes, um, reading Harry Potter. I read the entire series while we were there, And then also pumping constantly. It's all I did. Every three hours, day and night, I pumped because it was the one thing that I knew I could do to give my girls life. So um, one thing that I do remember is the Ronald McDonald house. I, I honestly have some PTSD from those three months, and there's not a lot of details that are super clear to me. Faces are all kind of blurry. Names just don't exist, so I make up fun names for people. Um, and and but as I as I walked through this, I do remember some some really amazing things about the Ronald McDonald House. Like every morning, I'd get up and there'd be Starbucks pastries, and that was extravagant for us. I could never get the pastries at Starbucks. Like that was amazing. And there was Girl Scout cookies galore, like boxes and boxes of Girl Scout cookies all the time. It was amazing. But then there was also people there. Every morning I'd wake up and there'd be someone making me breakfast and asking me how I was doing, how I was coping, how were my daughters doing, asking me more and more questions about them. And it's, they gave me a family, a family of strangers, honestly, people that I'll probably never see again. One day I remember more vividly than any of the other days because I had so many questions about that very first birthday. Um, But one day, about two months in, I met the respiratory therapist that had been in our room. And she said, oh my gosh, that day was so crazy, wasn't it? And I said, honestly, I don't remember. I don't remember anything about it. I still don't even know who delivered our babies. She said, oh my gosh, do you want me to tell you the story? (laughs) Yeah, obviously. (laughs) So she tells me she was the respiratory therapist for the little one. And um, as she got in there, there was already about a dozen people in the room, which I remember. Each of the girls had a doctor assigned to them, plus two nurses, plus a respiratory therapist. I had two nurses. I had the anesthesiologist. And I had the doctor, a resident who, in my head, I picture being a terrified Doogie Howser. I don't know what he really looks like, but I call him Doogie because I don't know his name. Um, and so Doogie's delivering, and this is the first time that he had delivered micropremies, and especially twin micro micropremies. I'm sure it was a scary day for him too. So he takes out baby A, and he passes her off. She's strong, so they take her to the NICU. He takes out baby B, and she's gray and she's lifeless. And he passes her off because that's his job. And he continues to work on me, and he closes me up, and he cleans me up. And the entire time, he's asking over his shoulder, I need an update. How about those, that baby? What about the little one? Is she dead? And he just kept asking, what about the little one? Is she dead? And the respiratory therapist is telling me this. And I'm like, oh, is it that? that was my question, too. Oh my and as I walked home to the Ronald McDonald house that evening, I was reeling because I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is just like... This gave me so many answers. And this was before a time of FaceTime, and I, we didn't have like even texting phones or anything like that. And I just wanted to share this story with someone. And I got to the Ronald McDonald house, and there was a gentleman who was cooking us spaghetti. His name's Spaghetti Guy. <laughs> and Spaghetti Guy listened to my story, and he was blown away by my story. And he said, guess what? I have twin granddaughters. Really? Oh my gosh, Spaghetti Guy, tell me more about your twin granddaughters. He said, my daughter is so crazy. She thinks twins are creepy. And she refuses to dress them the same. And you should see these girls. They are so different. They are like night and day. And I don't know if Spaghetti Guy knew that he was changing my life. But for the first time, I realized I could have normal twins. Like They didn't have to be creepy. They didn't have to be the shining twins. Again, that's what I thought, like was the inevitable outcome of having twins. They could be individuals. They could each have different interests. They could have separate lives. They don't have to have a joint wedding. Like there's so many possibilities that got opened up to me. So what the Ronald McDonald House brought me was so much bigger than a bed. It was so much bigger than a shower or even the boxes of Girl Scout cookies, which were amazing. But it brought me a community. It brought me people that listened to me. It brought me a family. And it taught me to listen. Now in my regular life, I am a children's pastor at a church, and I love to hear stories. I love to hear kids' stories, but I love to hear the parents' stories. I love to ask questions like, how are you doing? Like, But how are you doing in your marriage? Like those tough questions that maybe the rest of us kind of try to tiptoe around because we don't want to ask those questions. I want to hear their story and I want to hear all of it, even the gross grody details. So this weekend, my daughter's turned 13. Yeah, right? Baby A, Rosella Bayani-Florendo, is the coolest kid you're ever gonna meet. She's got a crazy, wicked style. She loves the stage. She's a huge extrovert. And when she grows up, she wants to be a geologist. Yeah, science. Baby B, Johanna Faith, the little one. She's still little, but she's kind. She's got more grit than any kid that I've ever met in my entire life. Nothing has ever been easy for her, but she still keeps working at it, and she still keeps trying. She's going to be a veterinarian when she grows up because she loves animals, and she's got a heart that just bleeds for hurt things. So I look at the pop tabs, and there's something small that can make a big difference. And I look at my girls, and there's something small that's going to make a big difference. Thanks.
0: So my career out of college began as an itinerant puppeteer traveling to elementary schools through the Northwest. And my first year I toured Rumpelstiltskin, where I played Rumpelstiltskin and Papa and the dog, Fritz. And then the next year I had the opportunity to write a show And I actually wrote an operetta for puppets because my degree in college was in opera vocal performance. So this was kind of a way to use my degree. It was a little different than I might have imagined. But uh, I I never was a big fan of the Pied Piper in particular, but the radio broke in my car. Uh, It was not a Dodge Seneca. Uh, It was a Datsun 210 SL. And uh, I, uh, I just heard this sort of... Dum and I thought, oh Drat, a rat running across the floor, how fat. Go scat, I'll sweep you right out the door. It's a rat. That's yeah. So then I had to find a show that would fit a song about sweeping a rat out the door. And the only story I knew of was the Pied Piper who got rid of the rats of Hamlin Town. So we've been tour we tour in a Chevy van, we fill it with our set, we fill it with the light equipment and the sound equipment and the puppets. And uh, the two of us perform everything and we hit the road and we get forty dollars a day per diem and we have to stay in hotels. So we stay in very cheap hotels, and we usually determine that by how much neon is on the sign outside. <laughs> And one of these hotels was in Federal Way, Washington. I think it was called the Roadrunner Hotel. And we parked our van out there. We had a quiet evening, came out the next morning, and the van was gone. Just an oil spot there in the parking lot. And we looked at each other, and we looked back at the oil spot, and we looked at each other, and we said, the van is gone. And I could only imagine that that was how the townspeople of Hamlin reacted. When their children disappeared, they just looked at each other and said, the children are gone, as they watched the fog lift off the distant mountains. So we had to take a train back to our headquarters in Vancouver, Washington. And we were there, and a week later... We got a call from an impound yard outside Seattle saying, "Hey, we've the police recovered your van. It's in our yard. Come pick it up." And we, I had written the show, and my partner Mary had built all the puppets, designed the set, everything. This had been our life for the last year, and it had just disappeared. So we were very concerned about, "Well, what's in the van? Like, can you tell us what's in the van?" And the guy said, "Oh, it's just a bunch of wood." And we thought, well, a guy who works at an impound lot would probably see our show and think it just looked like a bunch of wood. So we still had hope. But we got up to the impound lot, we looked in the back of the van, and it was a bunch of wood. (laughs) Our set had aluminum pipes that held the canvas drops. Uh, The lighting equipment were aluminum um, stands, the sound equipment, speakers. Uh, we thought it made sense to steal that, but we were like, well, why did, why did he take the puppets? And then my partner said, well, you know, the bones of the puppets are made out of aluminum rods. He might have. Yeah. <laughs> the poor children. <laughs> so I got in the van. Mary got in her car. We started back on I-5 South, back to Vancouver. And about a half an hour, I just was like, no, this can't be it, this can't be the end. So I pulled over on the side of the freeway. Mary came over next to me and she was like, what's something wrong? And I said, well, I just, you know, I noticed that on the police report, it lists the address of where they recovered the van. Why don't we go there? It might be like an empty field. And maybe this person just like threw the puppets out of the back of the van into a field and then ran off with the light and sound equipment and we we could recover the puppets if we have the puppets we have a show it would take us months to replace those so we drove up to the address and much to our surprise it was actually a very nice suburb of seattle up in the hills and there were not really any empty fields nice homes so we just parked the van on the street and i was kind of desperate i said well let's go around knock on doors and see if we can go through people's trash Maybe he threw the puppets in the trash. So we did that, um, got some interesting responses when we requested to go through people's trash and look for our, our, our puppets. Um, and one of the houses I knocked on, uh, the guy says, oh, were you, dri- you, that blue van is yours? And I said, yes. And he said, oh, I've seen someone driving that van for the last week. And he's staying in the house across the street. I was like, what, did, did you talk to the police? No, nobody's, nobody talked to me, but I am the neighborhood watch captain. So I, I noticed these things. So we were like, oh, well, that's amazing. He said, yeah, uh, let's call the house. I'm like, mm, is that a good idea? But he picks up the phone, he calls the house, we're looking out the window, and the phone rings once, gets picked up, dropped back down, and all of the blinds in the house start closing. So we're pretty sure that this story is adding up. Also, we're realizing we have just parked the van this man stole <laughs> right in front of his house. So that might've been a clue too. So I call the police. And of course, my experience with the police is from television. They, you call them and they're there like that. I called the police and I'm expecting your sirens and, you know, SWAT team appears, helicopters in the sky. We're waiting. We wait longer. We wait longer. And then pretty soon, Mary says, ah, he just came out the door and he's walking up the street. What? He's walking away? Like, we can't... I turn to the neighborhood watch guy and I'm like, where are the police? Where are the police? And I look back and I see the back of Mary's head going out the door. And now she's walking down the street behind this guy. And I think, well, I can't stay here. This was my idea to come to this address. Something happens to her, and I'm just hanging out with the neighborhood watch guy. So I walk out the door, and I stay on the other side of the street so it doesn't look like we're ganging up on him, but close enough to watch. And he... (laughs) So we follow him all the way up the hill. He goes into a store at the top of the hill. I pretend I'm waiting for a bus at the bus stop. Mary picks up a payphone, we still have payphones, and pretends to be making a call. Uh, fortunately, the bus did not come. Uh, and he then comes out of the store and starts walking the other way down this other thoroughfare. And Mary comes back to the bus stop, I'm like, we can't keep following this guy. Uh, we, you know, this is, this is crazy. And she's like, it's okay. I can sketch him. <laughs> okay? So we walk back down the hill, and lo and behold, the neighborhood watch guy has crossed the street and is at the house that he came out of, and is the woman who lived there, I guess her daughter, it was her boyfriend that we were looking for, and she took him around to the side, and there was a, a warehouse there, and they opened the door, and there were the puppets. No lights, no sound. A lot of missing aluminum structures that held up the set, but we had them, at least. And he asked her, like, well, well, do you know where he went? And she's like, I think he went to go cash a check. I'm like, hmm. And I said, well, do you know where the check cashing place? And the neighborhood watch guy's like, yeah, I know where it is, come on, let's go. Okay, so I get into his pickup truck, which has a gun rack in the back. And we rev up the street, and we pull down the road that he'd walked on earlier, made a couple of turns, and then we pull into the strip mall, and we pull right up to the glass wall of this payday loans check cashing place, and standing at the desk is the guy. For some reason, this guy had a car phone in his pickup, which was surprising to me, and he's like, call the police again. So I get on the car phone. And I say, hi, I called earlier about a man who stole our van with our puppet show in it. Um, We are uh, in pursuit of this person. Um, And right then they say, well, can you describe him? And at that moment, the man turned and walked toward the door Came out the door and stared at me through the windshield. He's about five foot nine, hundred and eighty pounds with graying curly hair, wearing an insulated jacket. And then he starts walking away and going down the other side of the street. Neighborhood watch guy goes in reverse, pulls the truck, and starts trolling down the side of the road. I said, Hey the police said to wait. And he's like, Well, tell him to hurry because we're following him. So we're going about five miles an hour down this road with a guy walking right next to us. We get to the corner of the street, neighborhood watch guy puts the truck in neutral and jumps out of the truck and confronts him and says, you've got a lot of nerve stealing a kid's puppet show. Those kids were waiting to see that show this morning and they didn't get to see it because you stole it. You're gonna wait here, the police are on their way. And the guy looks at him and says, I can't wait here. I have a warrant out for my arrest from West Virginia. And he takes off down this alley. And neighborhood watch guy says, I gotta stay with the truck, you follow him. So I start running down this alley looking for the guy in the insulated jacket with the curly graying hair and like popping my head in the back doors of bars and i mean i don't know what i'm gonna do if i reach up if i meet up with him i have no idea i'm like well would you like to hear a song from the show (laughs) i never did find him but i did go back to the check cashing place and i ran in there and i said hey there was a guy who was just in here um, the police are coming, but he's wanted for stealing our vehicle, and I just wonder if you have any information on him. And she said, oh, I can't, I can't give you any of that information. Well, then I saw a police person in the parking lot, and she came into the check cashing place, and I said, oh, thank God, are you here about the stolen van? And she said, no, I'm here because someone's selling perfume in the parking lot. <laughs> and I was like, oh, but, but we called about the stolen van. She's like, mm, not my case. So I, but the lady at the window sees that I'm talking to the police, and so she's like, come back here. She's like, uh, what, what do you know about him? And I said, well, uh, I think, I highly suspect that he probably was cashing a check from an aluminum recycling company, and um, he may or may not be from West Virginia. And she says, we did find a check for an aluminum recycling company. We have the guy's driver's license, which is from West Virginia. And we have his social security number. Great. Can you hold that? uh, And I'll let the police know that you have that. And you can contact them. And she's like, yeah, we'll do that for you. So I go back and find the neighborhood watch guy in his pickup. And I'm kind of excited. You know, I'm like, hey. uh, He's like, did you catch him? And I was like, no, no. But I have access to his social security number and his driver's license. And, oh, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah, okay, Jody, I'm wrapping it up. <laughs> so I have his social security card and his driver's license, and the guy looks at me and, and he looks very disappointed as if to say, I can't shoot a social security number. <laughs> we go back to the house. Uh, there finally is a policeman there at the warehouse. He drove a minivan little disappointed in that. (laughs) He did some fingerprint dusting, and then he just had us load the stuff back into the van as if, like, the end of the show. Like, pick up your stuff, put it in the van. And we drove back to Vancouver. We rebuilt the structure for the show, got some new sound and lights, and uh, the show continued to tour. Uh, We didn't hear anything for months except that... uh, There was an investigator who called, I don't know, nine months later to do some follow-up. But then we also heard that there was a television show in Seattle. Uh, It was kind of like a Saturday Night Live show. And they featured a story about the puppets getting stolen. (laughs) And on the screen, they were interviewing the artistic director of Tears of Joy Theater. And on the screen, there was a puppet that said, we're fine. We're, we're happy now. We finally escaped that capitalistic pig who was just making money off of us. And then the camera kind of rattled and turned to the side and there was another puppet strapped with duct tape to a chair with an eyeball hanging out. It was like, help us, help us, please help us. And it cut back to the anchor and the, uh, the director who said, you know, the saddest thing about this is it's clear those puppets are being manipulated. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Pettit Realty Group, and the Aluminum Show sponsor, Sage Yoga and Wellness. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello, and our musical guest was Jared Halleck. Support the Storied Program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. If you would like to see our storytellers, check out our YouTube channel at Story Story Boise. You can also donate by phone. Text flagship to 41444. Thanks for being a part of our story.